Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Hello and welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affair programs. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network, I'm Amy McMurtry. On today's Women on the Line, we look at women, their bodies and one of the key institutions which attempts to govern us, the health industrial complex. Today, my guests and I navigate the consequences of existing outside the margins the importance of pushing back and finding body autonomy and agency. We'll hear from Sheridan Byrne, feminist activist, doula and educator, about birth justice and the struggles that women and other birthing people face to birth on their terms. We'll talk about the patriarchal systems of care within the health industrial complex and the significance of the birth justice movement. Sheridan is a queer doula and birth educator who also works as an education and training officer within the community sector. Sheridan works with all birthing people, as well as birth partners, in the lead-up, during and after birth. Her mission is to provide education and advocacy to ensure that all birthing people have access and choice in their birth experiences as they build their family. Today, you'll hear from Sangeeta Thanapal about issues surrounding fat identity, race, intersectionality, the gender pay gap, and the experiences of marginality, stigma, and discrimination that fat women experience both inside and outside of the health industrial complex. Sangeeta is a Melbourne-based writer and activist whose work focuses on race, gender and the body. She is a plus-size woman of colour and has been quoted on the Washington Post and the New York Times. So tell us, what is birth justice and why is it such an important social justice movement? Birth justice is really about allowing all people to have access to the kinds of support that they need to, to build their family and to birth their family. And it's been going for a long time, really. There's a lot of work that's been done through the women's liberation movement and beyond that. I think that in more recent years, we've had more visibility of people, probably due to social media and that, you know, that the issue has just become timely as well and that people are starting to speak about their birth stories and share their birth stories and share about birth trauma and things like that. So although it's been going on for a long time, we've just got more probably momentum right now. Birth justice for me is about giving people, you know, an equitable kind of response through their birth experiences, no matter, you know, whether they're birthing in a hospital or, you know, birthing in in private or free birthing. People don't always see or think about birth as a political issue. And it's absolutely a political issue. So there's politics in anything, I think, to do with the body. And that also that when people are trying to access care, they're trying to access, you know, a system as well. And I think people think about things like the hospital system and the the maternity system as being these bodies of care, care providers. And we even call them care providers. But they are a system and they are you know, highly political and a lot of it is corporatized. And I've heard people recently refer to it as the health industrial complex. And like any, any industrial complex, we need to be able to give people the ability to, to access that system and 
kind of provide cultural brokerage to allow them to be able to navigate and still feel like they can have power within that system. A lot of the times, you know, the work that I do as a doula is really about just assisting people to get access to what they need within that system. You're talking about people who a lot of times, um, you know, identify as women in the world. And so they have the experiences that are typical to women who walk around in the world with women's bodies. And then you go into that system that doesn't have a trauma-informed lens, for instance, and doesn't have a political lens, you know, and, and doesn't have a gendered lens. And that's not seen, you know, that's not witnessed. And to do that birth justice work is really about being the witness to that. Birth justice holistically is around being able to see all that and being able to help people to navigate those systems. I'm really interested in exploring further that idea that you're talking about around autonomy and bodies and women's bodies and that really brings us to ideas of agency. Mm. And you know, I think so commonly women are taught to rely on specialists mm. And so I'm wondering if you can talk to us about how this plays out in the birthing world and and the impacts of people being disconnected from themselves in that way. If you attend birth and you watch and you're a witness to birth, you will observe that the thing that's really necessary is for the birthing person to become really, really connected to themselves and connected to their body and follow those little micro nudges that that happen, the messages that come, you know, second by second, minute by minute through their body. And that's the way, if somebody's wanting to achieve a natural physiological birth, they're wanting to mitigate against any kind of birth trauma, that's the thing that you, you work towards. You work towards the birthing person feeling really connected and having that sense of agency is really, really important so that they can make those choices those in those minute kind of moments. And it's really important for everybody who's going to support that person, that they honour that and they do everything they can to facilitate that. But, of course, if you go into a system of care where it is highly patriarchal and the birthing person is not positioned as an expert, then, yes, you're going to have people feeling like they're continually um, negotiating for their autonomy and the people who work in those systems will continually use that referent power. They'll use the knowledge they have as power over the person who's who's the birthing person. If this is a birth where there's no risks involved, if there's risks involved, then, you know, there's something medically concerning, then yes, you probably want to negotiate and look at where you can draw on those systems, you know, that the that referent power and that knowledge that, that experts have. You know, I have people that I'm a doula for right now. Uh, you know, I literally just have uh, booked a client last two nights ago. And, you know, some of the things that have been said to that birthing person, you know, about their body and about what they can expect and about that you know, that the hospital will need to book an induction because of all these different reasons. And none of it is really related to her. You know, none of it is really about her or her circumstances. It's actually about the hospital protocols. So it's about who has power in that in that instance. So it's always something that I think I'm talking to people about and anybody that wants to do birth justice work, you know, it's always going to be about like, how can you get your needs met in that system? while also remaining connected to yourself and your body and having body autonomy. The thing that happens sometimes is that it's such a uh, paternalistic kind of system where it's it's almost like, well, if you want to, if you want, if you are somebody with body autonomy and you feel 
you know, strongly that you know what your body needs and you know what you need emotionally to, if you wanted to achieve a natural physiological birth, the kind of backlash that happens with with people who are really strongly connected and, you know, advocate for themselves strongly is that they'll be told that basically, well, then you won't, you know, then you don't get access to the medical system. You don't get access to Western medicine, you know. It's, it's almost like, well, you you know, if if you don't want us, then you don't have, you know, then you don't have the right to anything. And really, most of the people I've worked with have birthed in a hospital and have said, I want to use that hospital system. I have the right to that technology. I have the right to that that system. I have the right to have all of those things there for me if I need them. But I want to give birth and I want to feel uh, connected to my body, connected to the people that I love that are, you know, that are coming with me to support me. And I want to feel like I've done this, you know, like I've, uh, that I have body autonomy as I go through this process. And that's what I want for myself. And that's what I want for, you know, this new being that I'm birthing. It shouldn't have to be like this punitive punishment, like that if you feel powerful in your body, then you're punished by people saying, oh, well, then you don't get access to the hospital system and you don't get access to the knowledge that we have or the skills or the or the services or, or any of this. It should be that you can go in and you can you can say, OK, well, if and when I need that, that's when I want to be able to call on that. But there's a lot of that kind of push pull going on and it, it feels it's it is very very uh, paternalistic. Like if you don't if you don't kind of be good and do things the way we want and be small and and you know bow down to our knowledge and and this power, then you don't get anything. You know you won't get the treat. Women on the line. Can you tell us about some of the shared experiences of stigma and discrimination that you see trans and other gender nonconforming pregnant people experience? There is this kind of one-size-fits-all approach um, through the maternity system and that means that people who already experience stigma, already experience discrimination because nobody's checking their privilege or, you know, or using uh, that, kind of, that kind of lens, then, then those things will, will occur in that kind of setting as well. And so, I mean, it's really, really common for even, you know, same-sex couples that the partner is continuously referred to as a husband and when that's clearly not the case and you know there's that might seem small but for somebody who's had to fight their whole life for visibility then this is actually quite triggering and traumatizing and just downright disrespectful and you know I just think sometimes how hard is it just to see people you know but people are caught up in the system you know like the people who work within the the system are also very oppressed a lot of the time so I speak to midwives who say you know like they're not doing the work that they came to do so you know there's obviously a lot of that pressure and those kinds of things going on where people feel kind of burnt out by their work. I think that when it comes to trans people as well I mean exactly the same kind of thing going on where people are just not informed they're not they're either not informed at all and disinterested because they're you know they're too busy kind of having to work within the policies that they're having to abide by or they're kind of voyeuristic and you know and intrigued in other ways and so are asking inappropriate questions and to the point where 
you know, they're really making people feel like they're not welcome or that it's an unsafe environment for them because they're not being seen. You know, there's no kind of humanistic kind of model. The inability to be able to critically analyse and understand what people's lived experiences are as they walk through that door means that people are continuously being made to feel unsafe. So the birth justice movement recently waged a very successful war against social media conglomerates yeah. surrounding censored images of people in labour. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us more about this campaign? Yeah, I mean, this was really amazing to watch this unfold. This was really driven by a woman in the States, Katie Vargas, and she has, she, it began on Instagram. She has an Instagram account called Empower, The Empowered Birth Project, and she started that, I think it was around 2014. She did lobby for changes so I think from from what I glean from like you know listening to her speak and reading her story is that she was noticing that there wasn't a lot of really positive powerful birth stories out there and that she almost felt a little bit like it wasn't okay to talk about how she felt really powerful and how she really felt like she'd achieved something through her birth experience. So she started to share images in her story and then, you know, was doing a lot of resharing of stories and images. So her Instagram account was getting shut down because it was the images were against the community standards. And so this has been happening for the last few years where um, a lot of people who are working in like the birth justice area just keep opening new accounts, keep showing photos of birth. So Katie was really, she was really leading this and she ended up going and having meetings with the legal department of Facebook. And a whole lot of us actually petitioned Angela Gallo and Lacey Barrett, who are birth photographers here in Melbourne, were, you know, again, they both share a lot of uncensored birth images as well and they were also promoting this this idea and this um, petition that was going around so you know like we were all everyone signed it and sent it in and so Katie went to the offices of Facebook and presented the petition they made a change to the community standards which was that if birth and I suppose you know even things like nipples so you know ridiculous things like if somebody looked like they were male-bodied nipples okay if somebody looked like they were female-bodied nipples not okay so that kind of came into this as well these negotiations and because a lot of a lot of people were sharing, um, you know, their nursing photos, so breastfeeding, chest feeding photos. A lot of people are doing that work of trying to just show those images and and also educate about like lactation and educate around like what is a good latch and how do you get a good latch and how do you have that first good you know feed when you're nursing and so a lot of this great educational work was being blocked and censored and you know even if it was out there, it's having to have like you know little stickers over things you know um she told that story and they agreed that it would now not come under things that you know were falling under nudity and pornography I think it was falling under pornography so if you saw a natural birth because you might see vulva or something like that then it would automatically be blocked because it would come under that category of pornography and nudity so we now do have and we don't know I mean it's still early days but now you can go on Instagram and there's a fair few accounts. I mean, the Empowered, the Empowered Birth Project is one. Um, there's one, I think it's called the Badass Mama or something. There's a few of them out there that are showing a lot of, like they've got a lot of videos and a lot of images now of natural physiological births, but also, you know, 
when things do go wrong medically. So it's just now this is really what birth is. I personally am really, really passionate about people everywhere knowing what birth is and knowing that they could be a part of supporting people through birth because I think that's what it's going to take as well for us to take power back and take birth back. A lot of the times I've talked to people about being at birth and that people will say, oh, I couldn't do that. Like, that's scary. And I'm like, no, it's amazing, you know. And now I think when people do get used to seeing what that looks like or if they thought I don't know if I could be at a birth I think I'm too scared they could go and have a look they could get educated they could know what what it really looks like to be at a birth and what kind of things they might be presented with so I think that's really really important work we really you know we need to see it's time for everybody to see what birth really looks like because there is a lot of this kind of in you know this internalized uh, kind of trauma going on that people are kind of projecting and just to see a birthing person looking really empowered through birth is really sets people off so I think it's a really amazing time now to be a part of this work and I'm really looking forward to see where we go next and on community radio stations right across Australia you're listening to women on the line you've been hearing from Sheridan Byrne about birth justice and the ways in which the health industrial complex attempts to control women and other birthing people's autonomy and agency. We'll now hear from Sangeeta Thanapal about fat bodies, the impacts of commonly held fatphobic ideologies surrounding fatness, and the ways in which fat people struggle against the health industrial complex. Tell us about fat identity and why, why it's important. Well, fat identity is really, for me, it's just claiming fatness as a neutral marker of anything like like saying I'm tall or I have brown eyes you know fatness should be should it should not be value laden or judgment laden the way it is currently is and it's important because um a lot of research shows that fatness is as predictable as height that actually there is a lot more possibility of you becoming or being fat because of a generational um genetic thing than it is the, and it's the same with being tall as well and also there's a political aspect of being fat which is that existing in a fat body is is resistance in itself going outside as a fat person in a fat body taking up space especially for women because fat phobia is gendered taking up space is a really political thing to do because we expect it to always be as small and as quiet as we can be so you've kind of touched on the kind of oppression that fat women or people in fat bodies face if you could talk a bit more to that and then also kind of applying an intersectional lens to that how does being a woman of colour magnify the kind of oppression that people in fat bodies face? If we think about how... So women of colour already face oppression for being women of colour, right? Of being... It, like I said, it's always gendered. And on top of that, there's race. So there's race plus gender. So when you add fat phobia, it's a pretty terrible situation. So intersectionality requires us to be able to understand that um, fat women of colour do face different types of biases and prejudices that from other women of colour and obviously which is all entirely different from what men of colour face. So studies have shown that fat women actually earn less than other women and this is taking into account for the gender pay gap. So in an office space, a fat woman for doing the same job will earn less than a thin or slim passing woman. And when you add the racial aspect to it, right, 
So um, women of colour earn less than white women. And then when you add this to that, it actually shows that uh, structurally that fatphobia and racism is enough of an issue to have real material problems for women of colour. And then we think about representation. Fat women are rarely ever represented to begin with. So this is a, a matter of us like clawing for, for air, right? So when they are, it's always white women. So I'd like to talk about the, the medical industry. Um, can you talk to us about the ways in which it takes away fat people, in particular fat mm. women's autonomy and agency? Yeah. I mean, firstly, medical fat phobia kills. It's it actually shown to kill people because um, people go in with, fat, fat women go in with problems that have nothing to do with their weight. And they're constantly told that it is their weight that is the problem. And then like a year later, we, we find out things like there's a tumor growing in them. And they die or they come close to dying because the medical industry is unwilling to, to look at people without their fatness being the biggest issue. So historically, um, black women's bodies are seen as objects. There's a lot of research that shows that people do not, or the medical industry does not react to black women's pain the way it does to white women's pain. And that black women are often told to suck it up and that they're not really going through this or any of those things. And so like, there's a lot of medical fat phobia that when you compound it with racism, that actually ends up killing people or at least it ends up like impairing them. In The medical industry could have helped a lot of these people and it didn't because it was so blinded by its fat phobia that so many people are now almost in a way disabled for life because they could not get help or access to treatment because doctors would not see past their fatness. So, I mean, the health industrial complex also feeds into this. And we know that now they're talking about the focus is on uh, thin bodies as health, you know, <laughs> oh rather than, you know, dieting. You know, what what do you say to that and the kind of damage <laughs> that really, that kind of moralising does? Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> thin bodies as health. I mean, let's think about the fact that thinness and size has nothing to do with health. There are huge Olympic athletes. So if that argument holds, then they would not be healthy. But I'm not sure how you win an Olympic medal without being healthy. Across time and space, right, fat bodies have existed. And in many parts of the world, even now, fat bodies are seen as beautiful and they are seen as the the aspirational model, okay? In most of Western society, it isn't, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's research into it that talks about how fat phobia is connected to colonialism, the way that gender binary is as well. This idea that thin people... That, that yeah, so it's healthy, right? It's not, it's not, okay? I mean... Bulimia exists, anorexia exists, and that's not very healthy either. And this conversation is not meant to throw any of those people under the bus, you know, because honestly, body positivity should include them, and they are part of this conversation as well. It's just changing. It's doing the same thing, because what it really is, right? So if we think about the fact that the dieting industry is worth $69 billion, right? And the backlash against it over the past decade or so has forced it to change its rhetoric, but it's not actually changed what it really is doing, which is it wants women especially to spend all of their time and money obsessed with being thin. And what was that? I think it's Jermaine Gray who said that a quietly mad population is a tractable population and it's meant to take women's attention and focus entirely on to how they look rather than the fact that, you know, we have a gender pay gap and that sexual harassment is so endemic that Ariana Grande just got groped on TV by a pastor and people are still talking about what she's wearing. So, I mean, we can really see through everything you're saying that these two industries together are kind of they're massive bases of power and they're very destructive in today's society. Mm. 
feeding into fat phobia and stigma and discrimination and yeah. real and all material oppression. So that they can sell certain things and so that they could yeah, sell certain types of bodies. And in order for you to aspire to achieve those bodies, you have to buy these things. You have to buy into this lifestyle of thinness, of forever, like keeping your body in a constant state of starvation, which is, it's cannibalistic. You you're What you're really selling is like, you want our bodies to eat itself. <laughs> what do you think people can do about this? Like as activists, as allies of you yeah. know, people in thin bodies, like how do we respond to this? I, I'm a big proponent of health at every size. I, I believe in that. And I think it's a really important movement. But I also think that we need to move past that. We don't owe everyone health. Like disabled people or people who are, have chronic illnesses, their bodies are not any less worthy than anybody else's bodies. And sometimes I worry that health at every size runs this thing where you can be healthy at every size. Well, you don't have to be healthy at all. You don't owe anybody that. You don't owe society that. Um, and the state is required and should be required to look after everyone, no matter whether they can be productive members or, or not. As to what we can do about it, I think that firstly, we need to move this conversation past. Body positivity is so bankrupt at the moment. I think we need to move towards fat positivity, which is where body positivity started from. And now it's been co-opted by everybody. <laughs> like You can look like the mainstream idea of beauty and then you can be like oh my god like um i have one role in my back and like oh, i need body positivity no it just just let's let's not go there but that's where it is right let's move past that let's move towards body towards fat positivity let's move towards like we don't you don't need to be healthy you don't need to be productive to be considered a human being and to be treated as one and allies need to start just i think magnifying fat people's voices in queer spaces that's fat phobia in anti-racism spaces, there's fat phobia. In so many spaces, which are otherwise supposed to be woke, right? There's a lot of fat phobia because it's it's about a personal disgust towards another person's body and a a judgment towards their their value as a human being. So allies need to start magnifying our voices, but also simply breaking down all of these assumptions behind what is a fat body or not. Firstly, that. The idea that fat people are unhealthy, we are not. We want to break that down. So I really think that allies need to start sharing articles about healthy fat people. But also, you know what? Fat people can be unhealthy. They can eat McDonald's all the time. They need to start talking about fatness as neutral. Like, I think that that neutralizing aspect needs to needs to happen. Right now, it's just, we always hear this, right? Oh, I'm fat. No, you're not fat. You're beautiful. Why can't I be both? Why is fatness this thing that you can't be right i'm fat and i'm hot i really am hot like i'm sorry (laughs) i know that 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 really stresses a lot of people out and a lot of thin women don't understand that but lots of fat women get hit on all the time and that's actually really normal either also i think it's time we start telling these stories about how fat women live really normal lives a lot of us date lots of us of us have really good sex lots of us get married lots of us have children lots of us go on to have amazing careers and all of these things we live really normal lives we're not just like shut in a corner in our houses like eating kale so what's happening (laughs) normalize it magnify it and Shut down people who equate health and fatness. That's all we have time for today. You were listening to Sheridan Byrne and Sangeeta Sanapal. Women on the Line is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed 
nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. The theme song for Win on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. I'm Amy McMurtry. Thanks for tuning into the show.